So I came into the meditation just before, in the middle, about seven o'clock. And it was so quiet in here, and just so still. And then I came and, and sat here and just could hear the, the dripping of the rain, of the water in the gutter, and the, just the very soft sound of the wind. And it was so, like there's nobody in here. And you know, there's 90 people, <laughs> 90 people sitting in this room. And it, there, wasn't, there wasn't a movement. And just before I walked in, um, I walked in from the teacher room, and I don't know if some of, some of you have seen, but there is a wooden ledge right up above room three, uh, and we're in room three and four, and back there where the teachers are. And there's a, a swallow nest, and this morning when we came in, there was this half of an eggshell right in front of uh, room, th- room three. It was just about a, not even a half of an inch, this white little eggshell empty. And John was there and John looked up and there was just, he, had, he could see, I, I couldn't really see, but there was just a tiny, tiny little baby swallow that just came into this world. And just now, when I was walk- just before I walked in, the, there were two little babies just sitting on the edge of the wooden plank. So quiet. You know, just sitting just like you're sitting. <laughs> just sitting there. You know, I think they had their eyes open and they were, you know, looking around. But I think that, they, you know, they're supposed to be having their flying lessons. And the weather isn't really good for that. So they're just sitting there so quiet. And so I was just, you know, then coming in here. And I was just sensing how, how, how strong the impressions can be on our consciousness, on our being, when we're in the stillness, when we're in the silence. You know, just these very subtle and refined impressions. And so the seeing the birds and just sitting there and coming in here and the wind and the water. The other day there was a very, very large king snake just moving along right, in fr- right across the driveway right here, where, right in front of the, the, where the building ends. Some of you saw that king snake. In the same way, just moving so slowly and so silently across the driveway. Just as I was walking up, I saw it. And it's probably about four feet long, you know, about two inches thick, the body. You know, and, and we know, we know that that, that king snake lives here. And this is its home. And so we often see it in different places, sometimes down in the dining, dining room area, sometimes up here. And so, you know, we know that there's nothing, well, I know there's nothing to be frightened of, but I'm sure some of you who, you know, would see something like that wouldn't be quite sure if you were uh, coming across a snake like that. But these impressions, you know, the impressions that happen in the silence as we, we begin to slow down and be more connected to our experience, whatever that experience is. And one of the impressions that has stayed with me today was the story from John's talk last night about sitting under the ledge with his wet down coat and, you know, and having the, the, the hope that moved him forward into the wet the dripping wet, and then moving back into the resistance and hitting his head against the rock and moving back and then moving. And I just kept sensing into that energetic movement of what happens in our mind, in our consciousness, because that movement is, I'm saying to, saying to John at two times, it's like the whole thing is understanding that movement. It's getting that movement of how we move into hope and grasp after something we think is going to do it for us. And then the resistance or the moving away and just such a wonderful image of hitting our head against a rock 
you know, in that movement, in that resistance, because it is painful. It's a painful movement because we're moving away from ourselves and we're moving away from our present experience, either into something that we like and we want and we think is going to give us that lasting satisfaction and happiness. In this case, you know, just getting the water running on our head. We're moving back, moving away from what's happening and what's here and that resistance and and getting the crack, you know? So I, this, this movement, this, I call it the, the two primary movements of mind, for and against, grasping and resisting, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking. And we find ourselves moving in that energetic field, in that cycle, back and forth. And that's really what we see when we come and we meditate we are confronted with our own mind. We are confronted with the habitual patterns of the of, of what's called dukkha, or the unsatisfactory nature of this existence. When we're caught in that cycle of dukkha, of the grasping and the resisting, the grasping and the resisting. The Buddha talked about. Dukkha, and the ending of this dukkha, or sometimes that word dukkha is translated as suffering, sometimes that's too strong of a translation, sometimes better, just the unsatisfactory nature of this existence. And he talked about the ending of that, that we can come to the full ending of that cycle. And that is what is liberation. When we talk about liberation or, or waking up into the aim of this path, that's what we're talking about. It's being liberated from that cycle of dukkha. And the dukkha is that movement, is that movement. And so when we come and sit, we're generally looking at that and we, we call that our, our relationship to what's happening. How are we, are we relating to our experience, whatever it is? Are we grasping or attaching onto it or are we resisting it, feeling aversive to it? That's pretty much, you know, particularly on the first couple, uh, first couple of days, we're very much uh, in that cycle. And it's so important to understand this and to investigate it and to know it, to recognize it, that we, we want to give it a lot of attention. Because we're, we're in this, this is life. We might say, this is life. This is, this is where we find ourselves. You know, we find ourselves in with a mind and a body. We find ourselves in a situation where things happen. Things happen in our mind. Things happen in our body. Things happen internally, externally. And we're continually needing to come into a wise relationship with the conditions that are arising so that perhaps we're not just caught in that uh, grasping for what we like and pushing away what we don't like. I wanted to, um, just uh, uh, in the past few weeks, I've been getting some emails from my friend who lives in Christchurch in New Zealand as Mary Grace mentioned the other uh, night, I, I've been teaching in New Zealand for some time, so I have some friends and some community there. And I was just there in uh, March and was supposed to teach in Christchurch. However, that's where a very major earthquake happened just before the one in Japan. And so it's been, you know, really quite... Um, Difficult, you know, hearing a lot of the news coming out of there got overshadowed by Japan. 
But I've um, been getting some emails from my friends there and hearing just about the ongoingness of life in Christchurch. Um, they've had more than 4,000 aftershocks since the first earthquake in September. And the one that happened at the end of February was an aftershock of the one in September, but it was more damaging than the one in September. So, you know, living with that, living with, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning when there's another 5.2 happening or something, you know. This friend has two little boys. And so she sent me this this email uh, a couple weeks ago, and she said, we had dramatic happenings last week when a hole opened up at the end of our driveway. You know, they have... uh, 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 liquefaction there where the, where the, you know, the soil kind of turns into quicksand so that things that have been placed on top of it just start to sort of <laughs> sink into the, into the quicksand, into the liquefaction. So this was happening to her driveway. She said, we had dramatic happenings last week when a hole opened up at the end of our driveway. The hole was about the size of an adult foot. But when you look down there was no ground underneath as far as the eye could see. By the end of the day, it was two adult feet, long and a bit wider, still no ground underneath to be seen. <laughs> I mean, when I was reading this, it was just, I just tried to get a sense of what that would be like, you know, her, her property, you know, where you know, she owns the house and <laughs> there's a hole where you can't see down to the ground. And then she said, when I spoke to the council, they said they expect to see lots of these holes opening up over the winter. You know, there it's winter. Here here we're going into summer. As so much soil has been lost, lost from down there. By day three, the hole was about four feet in length and two feet wide. And still we could not see where where it ended under the ground. So, (laughs) you know, the days are going by, right? Uh, they said in, they couldn't see in any direction. It was very dramatic, and we had to close, close it off, obviously. Luckily, the council came that day and was able to pour a truckload of gravel in so we could actually then drive the car up the driveway. Now, a week later, the hole had sunk again, but at least we know there's some gravel underneath, so there shouldn't be an immediate collapse, and we can still drive over it for the moment. You know, so <laughs> they're driving their car you know, back and forth over this hole where at first they couldn't even see the end of it, and now it has some gravel. So then a couple of days ago, I got another email and said, well, the hole just kept getting bigger and deeper again, despite the tons of gravel that were shoveled down there. On Sunday, we stuck a broom under the ground to see how far under our driveway it went, and, well, we didn't touch the ground, and the broom disappeared at the end of my son's arm. In the meantime, the councilmen came, shook their heads, and said, nah, it needs a digger. So the digger came today and dug out a great big chunk of our driveway and filled it up with gravel. We can now drive up the driveway again. For the time being, anyhow, the guy said it's likely to subside again and said, just keep calling us and we'll come out and fill it. You know, it's just something about that story, you know, just the kind of the endless nature of challenging experiences. You know, this is life. This is the, this is the, this is the life that we live. And it's so interesting that I know and I see it in myself when we come to, come to meditation come to a retreat, and there's some kind of idea that everything's going to smooth out. You know, that, that, our, that our meditate, we're going to get very calm and quiet, and all, you know, the thoughts might even, you know, quite disappear, and the body will get very comfortable, and no more pain, and, you know, and everything's going to get easier and better and smooth out. And then when it doesn't happen, like in the first two hours, you know, and then there's this kind of agitation or restlessness or frustration. Today, some people were speaking about this, you know, and, and one person said how disappointed he was in himself, you know, that he couldn't 
get his meditation to be in a better place. You know, and there's a way that we then begin to take this personally. You know, like somehow it's my fault, or I'm not doing something right, or I'm doing something wrong. And it's so easy to then turn it really on ourselves. We can get judgmental, we can get, uh, we can really undermine ourselves, sometimes be very harsh, um, you know, with our expectations and our ideals and our practice. And, and it's, so we, I talk about this to kind of maybe wave a little bit of a, of a red, red flag that maybe on some level this isn't also personal. Maybe this in some ways is the nature of having a mind and a body, firstly, and then just being where we are along the way. That all of us are in a a certain place along the way, along our path, along our journey. You know, and this is where we find ourselves. We might like to be in a different place place we may like to we may like to be further along or have expectations about where that is what it even looks like to be further along first of all you know but we but we are where we are this is this is life this is the way it is one of the first things that happens when we come and and sit is we're confronted with all of our ideas about our spiritual practice. It's not just in the beginning. It's also in the middle. (laughs) It's also towards the end. I mean, even if we can call that the end, you know, there isn't really an end. Where is the beginning? Where is the middle? Where is the end? You know, again, those are ideas. Those are concepts. We try to place ourselves somewhere you know, but it's constantly changing, and, and those of you who have been on this path for a while know that. You know, I, I, I've been meditating for many years, and I honestly feel I am only just beginning. It's just, I mean, I'm not even sure I'm, I've be, I'm beginning. I'm not even, <laughs> I'm even sure that I've begun. You know, sometimes I just don't know what's going on anymore. But we, we, we like to have some way to measure or to place ourselves or, you know, to have some kind of reference point for our practice. Very, very early on in my meditation practice, when I had many ideas about where I was or where I should be on the path, you know, even in the first, you know, three or four years, my teacher, one of my teachers at the time, Sharon Salzberg, said to me, just kind of shook her head and said, don't evaluate your practice. Yeah, don't evaluate your practice. Because what, 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 what is that evaluation based on? What, is, what, it, what, is, what am I using for my criteria, for my measurement? You know, it's just my own mind. And is my mind a reliable resource to tell me how I'm doing at any given time? (laughs) Or your mind? (laughs) Probably not. You know, so, so really what, what happens and, you know, wherever we are along, along this path, however long you've been practicing, you're going to be continually confronted with any ideas, ideals, expectations you have about what is supposed to be happening in your experience. What we can look at and what we do look at is the way the mind moves in this grasping and this rejecting. Because essentially what we are grasping and rejecting is our ourself and our own experience because all experience arises here arises from here 
or from where you are sitting, from there. And so any time your mind is moving in that way, you're really, in a way, rejecting yourself or trying to manipulate or control your own experience to be a particular way. And that can only be based on some kind of idea or some kind of ideal or some kind of measurement. And we get that, you know, we get that, those ideas from books and from teachers and teachings and the texts, you know, the Buddhist uh, teachings. And, we, you know, I had to at one point stop reading those because it just kept feeding that my comparing mind, you know, and just kind of get, kept becoming a kind of measurement, saying, well, I'm not there, you know, I have that, I have so much further to go, you know, why would I even think I could get there, you know, and, you know, it's just more food for, for the judge, for the comparing mind, you know, for that ego mind or the selfing, I call it selfing, you know, building up the sense of myself. It's not really helpful, you know. So it's not unusual to be having the kinds of experiences that you're having, whatever they are. You know, even if, you're, if you are having times where you're feeling things are really getting quiet, I mean, I know they are because we, we do have those times getting quiet and settled and feel the silence and the openness and the connection with all the subtleties of of the senses and the thoughts, those times come. But we know, we all know, that they also go. They come and they go. (laughs) It's like all experience does. So then we are left with looking at our relationship to that. How are we being with our experience, whether we like it or whether we don't like it? Because really what we're looking at is that, again, you know, that relationship, that way that I either want it to stay or I want it to go away. And we can see this. We can see this with all the different kinds of things that arise in our experience. Whether it's, you know, people talk about pain. A lot of people in here have pain. And it's a great teacher for us in that respect. How are we being with ourselves in that pain? Are we being kind of cruel to our body or to ourselves in that pain, thinking that somehow it's an obstacle or a hindrance for us to be able to do our practice? Well, here, when we do a mindfulness practice, we begin to have the attitude that nothing is an obstacle. Nothing is really an obstacle. But as we are able to bring our mindfulness and our kindness and our respect to whatever is arising in our experience, that gives us the opportunity to begin to transform these experiences so that they aren't they aren't arising in a way that is causing us so much uh, contraction and so much pain and so much suffering. We begin to see that so much of that, that dukkha is the relationship itself, the relationship of attaching and resisting. And that sometimes that attachment can be very, very strong, that grip We really want something. We really want it to be the way we want it to be. And we can feel the energy building in that desire and that wanting and the intensity of that. And as that builds, we can feel how our body just begins to, in some ways, close down because there's so much contraction in that holding. I want that. I want that. And we can begin to really feel that wanting energetically. And as we do, as we get to know it, as we get to feel it, understand it, we can see how it actually closes us down. Doesn't open us, 
doesn't make us more available to experience or connection, we get, start to shut down in that, that grasping, that wanting. And, and conversely, the same with the resisting. We don't want something to be happening. And we all know this. We all know this. I don't want it. And in that not wanting, we can feel the energetic contraction and tightening and the way the whole body starts to close down in that pushing away. It's not just a subtle mind state. We start to feel it in our entire body as we start to become sensitive to it. Our breath starts to get shallow and tight and the oxygen kind of starts to be less available and, and our muscles start to get more rigid and our body starts to get rigid. Our face can get red. You know, even water starts to come to our eyes depending on how strong that, that aversion is or that ill will. We start to feel the whole physiology of these, both the desire and that wanting and the resisting, the aversion and the ill will. And it can be, you know, whether it's to something that's happening in our body, whether it's pain or whether it's um, sleepiness or dullness or whether it's states of restlessness or whether it's out there, you know, somebody making some sounds that we don't like or off sometimes it can even be in the the dining room where you just see how somebody's taking the food and putting their food on the plate and how much food they're putting on their plate and you're kind of looking always at why are they taking so much food you know and all of a sudden it becomes your business somehow you know how another person is eating or how another person is walking or dressing or how they look and we just start to kind of get really distracted in in from ourselves and start to feel these very difficult experiences in ourself. So we're, we want to know this. We want to, we want to learn about it. This practice that we're doing here is about learning. It's about understanding so that we can start to, to, to tease out those, what makes up those difficult patterns of mind What's actually giving rise to that, to those suffering states, those difficult states of mind? So, that, so therefore, if we're rejecting the difficult states of mind, if I'm rejecting the aversion and I'm rejecting the judgment and I'm rejecting myself when I see myself attaching and controlling and manipulating, we just, can, can you see how it's just we're adding more of the same? We're just adding more of the same thing that we don't like on top of it. More grasping and more rejecting. And we can just get into that cycle. More rejecting the rejecting the rejecting. Or rejecting the desire or the attachment, you know? And at some point, we have to find our way out of that Otherwise, we're just caught in it and we're just cycling around in it. And it seems that the only way out is to take a step into mindfulness. Take a step into awareness where we actually know and we see what's happening. Because in that knowing, in that mindfulness, the awareness... That's where we're not caught. That's where we're not in it. Because we say, oh yeah, there's the resistance. There's the attachment. And we're seeing it with clarity, with understanding, recognition. And just that one step already means that we're a little bit out because we know what's happening and we're not just cycling around, we're not just caught like in the, uh, the dryer, you know, when you put clothes in the dryer and they're just going round and round and round and round. We open the door <laughs> and stop it. <laughs> you know, and that's what the mindfulness does. That's why we want to put our faith in the mindfulness, put our trust in that, because that is our 
step out. That's the doorway where we can start to step out and begin to understand what is this cycle? What is this mechanism? These patterns of mind that are bringing about so much dissatisfaction. So starting somewhere, we need to start somewhere in that paying attention so we're not rejecting. There's this lovely um, teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh from his book, Present Moment, Wonderful Moment, where he really talks about this... um, this way of transforming our experience. He says, garbage can smell terrible, especially rotting organic matter, but it can also become rich compost for fertilizing the garden. The fragrant rose and the stinking garbage are two sides of the same existence. Without one, the other cannot be. Everything is in transformation. The rose that wilts after six days will become a part of the garbage. After six months, the garbage is transformed into the rose. Isn't that beautiful? Just like that. The rose that wilts after six days will become part of the garbage. After six months, the garbage is transformed into a rose. That's the attitude. That's the attitude. As we start to see more clearly what's actually happening, how we want to approach our experience. He says, when we speak of impermanence, this changing nature, we understand that everything is in transformation. Everything's in transformation. So even what we're calling the garbage, the garbage, you know, is usually all that which we don't like. We just put it all in a pile, right? You know, John was talking about that last night too. It's all stuck in the closet, right? (laughs) And then we open the closet, it all falls out. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like that, you know. But it's all, as as we open the door, which really is what we're doing in this mindfulness practice, we're really opening the door. We're saying, okay, I'm going to sit here and I want to see things the way they really are. I want to see my mind the way it really is. I want to know my body the way it really is. I want to know my emotions. I want to know the uh, conditions of this environment that I live in. I want to see what it's like to actually be awake, to be alive, to be here, to be present. It's opening the door. And as we open the door, we don't know what's going to show up. But when we sit here, we are inviting that. We're inviting those conditions either the ones that have been suppressed or pushed away or denied, or the ones that are unexpected, that just come out of nowhere. Whether it's our issues around our health or other people that we're close to their health or the death of loved ones or, you know, accidents, all these unexpected events, earthquakes, tsunamis, you know, the conditions of this world are getting so chaotic, we don't know anymore. We don't know anymore. But as we sit and stay open, it's this, this Thich Nhat Hanh's book, this present moment, wonderful moment. But how, you know, it's like we ask the question, how can the garbage be a wonderful moment? <laughs> How can the garbage be a wonderful moment? But that's what we're awakening to, really, is that possibility. The possibility that whatever is presenting itself, we can open to with awareness, with kindness, 
and, and more and more perhaps with a real deep respect. When I was reflecting on this talk, I think that was a, one of the elements that came very strongly for me was just what's, what's, what's needed is such deep respect for ourselves, for others, and for what we're all going through at any given time. You know, and I was really feeling that, you know, that just that feel of this quality of a, of, of a compassionate connection with the conditions that arise within my own mind, what I see with others and around me. You know, such respect. And it's a lovely thing to begin to open to that more and more, that capacity to be able to respect ourselves so deeply which is why we teach the loving-kindness meditation along with the Vipassana, to really help cultivate and to generate that kindness and that care, that respect towards our experience and all that's arising. And it's the way that the mindfulness and the loving-kindness really come together, mindfulness and metta. They're not different, not separate. We're really practicing those two things together. We see, we, the mindfulness brings us into connection with what's happening, and we see what's happening. And as we do that, we, we turn the mind, we incline the mind towards a kind way of being with our experience as much as we can. And if we can't, then if we find ourselves resisting or rejecting or angry or uh, caught up in some difficult state, judging ourselves or another person, then we see if we can turn the kindness towards that. Again, where is that step out? Where is the one step out of the cycle? We just need that one, finding that one place just right outside where we're not caught. And that's when there is some mindfulness, some awareness, some kindness. We're out. I was remembering um, this time, my very early days of practice, when I was first doing maybe the first or the second three-month retreat I did at the Insight Meditation Society in the early 80s. And... um, I remember this one time, uh, there were a number of my friends who were on that retreat. We were starting uh, to do more intensive practice in those days. And I remember this one time, I was actually feeling a lot of aversion and a lot of rejection, a lot of anger and a judgment. Most of the time, that's why I can speak with some, you know, expertise around these mind states. Um... And I remember this one time where I was sitting in the morning. It was probably towards the middle of the uh, five, six weeks into the retreat. So, you know, I was pretty quiet, you know, in my meditation. It didn't necessarily mean that at times my mind wasn't going into these rages. So I remember this one time where um, it was breakfast at the Insight Meditation Society in the old meditation hall they've remodeled since in the last 35 years but um they had a carpet and so one of the yogi jobs was to have that carpet vacuumed um three four times a week and so i was sitting after breakfast uh, during i went sat through breakfast it with a bell rang bef- bef- to, for breakfast time and i was sitting and really enjoying my meditation and feeling quite good about it and just sat through breakfast. And then, as you know, the yogi jobs begin. And, and so my friend, my close friend, who I considered a good friend, uh, came in to do his yogi job and to start to vacuum the carpet. And I was still sitting. I'm the only one in the meditation hall sitting. And I remember getting so angry at him. You know, I'd been sitting, what, like now for what, an hour, an hour and a half? You know, we're supposed to, you know, be getting more calm and more settled. And as soon as the vacuum cleaner started up, I just went into this rage. And this is, you know, five weeks into sitting because that tendency was still so strong in me. And I just thought he had no right to be vacuuming 
the floor while I was meditating. And I was the only one in the hall. There are a hundred people, you know, doing this, uh, this retreat. And he was just doing his job, right? He's just doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I'm just like, in my mind, I didn't open my eyes and I didn't say anything. And I'm just sitting there fuming at him. How could you? How dare you? You know? And this, uh, this rage, and, and I thought I was right. You know, there's, we get into this kind of self-righteous anger at times where I'm right and that person's wrong and they shouldn't be doing that. And because I had been practicing and at some point I recognized what was going on and, you know, still sitting and, um, you know, and then all this kindness, all this kindness, like, oh, wow, you know, how caught how caught I get. You know, this is supposed to be my friend. <laughs> you know, in that moment I was hating him. You know, strong, strong emotions. And then this beautiful, you know, kind of wave of, of compassion towards myself. And then towards him. You know, that I would treat my friend like that, right? We treat our friends like that. We treat people who we feel close to and we, we love. You know, and then if there's that that when we can just step back for a second or just step out of it for a second and go, oh, wow. There's that really caught in that rejection and that aversion and that ill will and that stepping out, even if it's just, just that, ah, that out-breath, then there's the possibility of the seeing clearly and then the seeing clearly and then the possibility for some response from the heart through the heart of where we feel the kindness and the care and the respect because this is what happens this is the whole you know all of a sudden a hole opens up where there wasn't one before and it can be a really deep hole <laughs> you know and then maybe this you know mindfulness and the metta is kind of the gravel you know fills up the hole Hopefully, hopefully we're filling it with mindfulness and metta. <laughs> we're not just filling it with, you know, more junk. But, you know, being able to, being able to see more clearly and to, to sense and feel really what this condition, this very, very difficult condition that we find ourselves in. So we bring these, we bring these practices together. Nisargadatta said, the mind creates the abyss, love crosses it. The mind creates the abyss, you know, the whole, that, that vast crevice where it seems like there's no ground. We could fall in and just disappear. And it, can, it feels like that sometimes. The, the, the hole that's created from our own past conditioning, the impressions, the influences from the past, where we get so caught in those very reactive, manipulative and controlling states of mind. And it can feel like a great abyss that we fall into and we get lost. And we do, in a way. We do lose ourselves and we lose connection with our own heart, with our body, with a sense of presence, awareness. We lose connection with reality, with what's really true and real. We can't see clearly like I couldn't see my friend. He just became this person who was interfering with my meditation. You know, it was all about me. It was all about my meditation and my experience. No. Just covered over, can't see clearly. That veil of of delusion and confusion, of ignorance. So we're we're practicing, we're cultivating this mindfulness, this waking up, waking up, waking up out of the conditioning, waking up out of the dream, pulling back the veil, the veil of confusion, delusion where we're just not seeing things so clearly 
all the time. But things become rather distorted, confused. Marcel Proust, the uh, French novelist, said once, he said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Just trying to have new eyes so we see more clearly, we have a, a better viewpoint on what's really true, what's really going on here. Rather than seeking new landscapes, seeking new experiences, and then getting upset when we don't have the kind of experiences that we want to have. You know, it's a very adolescent kind of of, of uh, behavior, really. You know, this, I want what I want, and I want it now, and I want to have, you know, what I want, and I don't want to have what I don't want, and, you know, I mean, we do call it adolescent mind. It's not, I'm not, you know, degrading anyone, because you know, we just see that in, in ourselves, you know, just how we get caught in that. And we're trying to be free of it, because being free of that means that we feel happier. We feel more satisfied. We feel more content. We feel more open and connected, present. We feel more at ease. And when that happens, we like it. And it's okay to like it, but, (laughs) and you know the second part of that, It's okay to like it, we just can't hold on to it. We can't make it stay like that. But it's absolutely okay to like that and to feel the wonderful feeling when we feel connected and open and easeful and peaceful and settled. It's natural that we're going to like it but then we have to watch and see what might bring about that suffering. How does it move into a suffering nature? Through the grasping, through the contracting, through the becoming more tight and wanting, not wanting. So this is really so much of what we're looking at. When I really, you know, some years ago when I really started to get that this is what it was about, this movement of mind for and against, this grasping and rejecting, I spent a couple of years just watching that movement. It was so interesting, just seeing how my mind did that. It wasn't like it stopped you know, upon recognition that this was so important. It was like, okay, now I get to watch it. You know, now I get to really see it because I know what it is and I know, where, you know, how it's manifesting. And so now I get to pay attention. And in that pay atten- paying attention, then more understanding comes, more learning comes, and hopefully more letting go comes. But there's a lot to let go of. <laughs> It seems like <laughs> that path of letting go is a seems to be a long path. Even though it also can just happen in a second. At the same time, we can just, ah, I've let go. We can experience that, and it's real, and it's true in that moment. And then it seems like something happens where we just get caught again get triggered, something confronts us again. And that'll last for a little while, and then it'll just be an instant, and then, ah, it's opened up again. Ah, I can relax now, breathe again. Ah, and just we with that for a while. So we just see if we can stay present with this unfolding moment to moment to moment paying respect to the way that this wants to emerge for us. This is really our practice. Understanding the dukkha, 
the cycle of dukkha, what gives rise to that, how that shows up for us, and how we come to the end of it, which is called the full heart's release, the pure heart's release. So I'm going to end there. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.